Welcome to the 114th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk about the past week's college basketball action and briefly preview this weekend's NFL playoffs divisional round. Let's jump right in with a look at college basketball action from the last week. Patrick, let's start with the upsets. Oklahoma State went on the road and beat number one Baylor 61 to 54. Uh, Baylor completely outplayed Oklahoma State in the second half, but not by a big enough margin to overcome the deficit that they had at the end of the first half. And as a result of that, they took their second loss of the week uh, after being the, I I think there was a stretch where three straight number ones had lost immediately after being ranked number one, and they broke that streak. But three weeks later, uh, it came. They lost two games the uh, last week, or last, I guess, voting cycle, you could say, for the AP poll. Um, And then... Now they are uh, now. Now they've lost this game to Oklahoma State too. Uh, we'll see later that they did rebound later this week. But uh, Baylor uh, again, it's another loss where I'm not really too concerned about um, a team's overall standing just off of one game. College basketball is weird like that. I, I would say this is not uh, this is not a loss that I think I would want a team taking when I think that they're a top contender and the number one team in the country. But all it has caused me to do is just rethink who is number one. I still think Baylor is a high-quality team. They're definitely going to be a one seed probably by the end of the year. Um, I'd be surprised. I'd be more surprised if they didn't get a one seed than if they did. Uh, So I think that's the best way I can put it in terms of uh, Baylor's chances this year. Uh, I still don't think, though, and I think it's obvious, too, that I, I still don't think this team is as good as the championship team last year just because they're replacing talent. But you know, when it all comes together and they maybe once they've played together longer, maybe they might be just as good because that team, uh, that team might've been quicker to score, but, uh, or quicker to, quicker to get, um, acclimated with each other. But it still feels like it, that team still did a lot of growing at the end of the year in terms of finding whose roles were whose. Uh, so by the end of the year though, they did figure it out obviously. And that's why they ended up being so good. But, uh, moving on from that, Oregon beat a team that definitely won't get a one seed, number five USC, on the road at 79 to 69. That was USC's second loss uh, in that voting period. We already talked about their first one, and then their near loss to, oh no, Oregon State, the three and thirteen team. Uh, but now the best team in the state of Oregon for basketball, at least I think. I hope I'm not disrespecting some team in a uh, in a lower conference that's actually pretty good, but I don't think there are any now that I think about it. So I'm going to go ahead and say Oregon is the best team in Oregon. Uh, they came in, they beat USC. Uh, 10 points does not describe how much Oregon dominated this game. They were really up by 15 or 16 for a large portion of it. They came out on fire. They ended the game on fire. USC's defense looked pretty bad. It looked like they weren't really doing much to <laughs> stop Oregon in any way whatsoever. I mean, uh, they're a team who's not really ranked very high in Ken Palm in terms of defensive uh, efficiency there, so not all too surprising. Uh, but at the same time, we know they're not a top-five team. If you've actually watched college basketball this year, you would put many teams above them. Uh, and when the AP poll came out for this week, that happened because they're now 16th in that poll. Uh, but moving on from that, I would say easily the most surprising upset Maybe of the year, I would argue, maybe except for Utah Valley State's win over BYU in week two or something like that, when BYU was number 12. Uh, Northwestern went on the road and beat number 10 Michigan State 64-62. to uh, Really credit to Northwestern. I don't really think Michigan State played the worst game. I don't think Northwestern... 
uh, did anything too out of the ordinary. It really just felt like on that day, Northwestern was playing as the better team. They're not a better team overall, but on that day, they were the better team, and I feel like it was a close enough game that someone's shot would, would end the game, and whether it was someone missing a shot or someone making a shot, and Marcus Bingham missed uh, two free throws, and that was the end of the game. So uh, it, it kind of makes sense. That's how that game was trending, and that's what ended up happening. Uh, so good for Northwestern. Uh, maybe the next most surprising upset, although I would argue if you look at the preseason rankings, the team that actually won was way higher ranked than the team who lost. Uh, Arkansas beat number 12 LSU 65-58 to on the road. Only difference in this game is that while Arkansas was unranked, they also started the season in the top 20 and LSU started the season unranked. So in terms of overall talent, they're probably on par with each other. I think LSU was underrated to start the year, uh, and I think Arkansas was pretty much accurately rated, honestly. I think by the end of the year, they'll probably be a low top 25 team, uh, depending on how the rest of their schedule turns out. Although the SEC as a whole is just so much better than we thought it might be that maybe that's just not possible and it's not very realistic just off the early losses they've already had. But uh, I'd still say I think Arkansas is good enough to beat teams like LSU, maybe not on the road too often, uh, but once or twice a year, maybe. Uh, And I think this is the one where it does happen. Uh, But moving on from that, Kansas State beat number 19, Texas Tech, 62 to 51. Uh, if if conferences gave out team of the week awards like they do player of the weeks for in conference, Kansas State would have won this week. So and we'll get we'll get to why later. But Texas Tech I think did the same thing a few weeks ago where they were unranked or they were I think twenty fifth I guess for half of it and they beat Kansas. They had one loss against Iowa State, but it was by four on the road when they had two when they had their two best players arguably out. And then they came back and beat Kansas when only one of them came back. And then they got another win uh, right after that. So, look, Texas Tech did that a few weeks ago. And Kansas State did this week. We'll get to that win in a second. Let's move on to, I think, the best stat I've seen in a very long time. Uh, But it's less to do with the game and just more to do with the program. Florida State beat number 6 Duke 79-78 to in overtime. The crazy thing about this game is not the scoreline. I think anybody who follows college basketball knows Florida State is super, 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 super tough to beat on the road. Uh, they have, I believe, five losses in their last 89 or 90 uh, home games. Uh, and other than a loss to Syracuse this year, that was really a big surprise. Uh, none of those losses are against bad teams. It's not even close. All of the four other teams that had beaten them. Uh, as opposed to the 81 that they had beaten or 83 or whatever it is now. Uh, they were all ranked teams, I'm pretty sure. I think some Duke teams in the past, some North Carolina teams, some Virginia teams. And the thing is, even when those teams do come into town, most of the time Florida State is able to take care of them. Uh, that's not the surprising stat of the game. The best stat of the game, Florida State in this game won their 13th straight overtime game. That is the longest winning streak of all time in D1. It was before they won today, or, or a few days ago. It was 12, and that was already the record. 13 only extended their own record. And look, 13 straight overtime wins is insane. I don't really know what you can say about it. I mean, you, you see NBA teams with great players that don't even go maybe undefeated on the uh, in overtime in a season when they play four or five games in overtime. To go 13 in a row in the style of college basketball where your roster turns over and is different every single year is is a great testament to how good of a program Florida State is. And uh, 
they'll be in the tournament by the end of the year, I think pretty safely. I think they'll work, they'll work their way off the bubble uh, with some more wins later uh, later in the, in the year and also some upsets that they might be able to pull, just like this one over Duke. But moving on to why Kansas State should have been the Big 12 team of the week, Kansas State beat number 23 Texas 66-65 to on the road. Uh, a lot of road upsets this week, actually. Very, very surprising. And not even games that were necessarily supposed to be close, I would argue, uh, especially this one. Uh, but Kansas State gets it done, I think, on the same night, actually, that Duke went down. Uh, so nothing but credit to Kansas State, honestly. Uh, not too familiar with the roster, honestly, so I won't try to talk about important players or anything like that. I really would be out of my depth trying to talk about that. Um, and just overall, it was a good week for them. I think there's nothing really more to be said other than that. Uh, but moving on from that, Marquette beat number 11 Villanova's 57 to 54 on the road. Again, another road upset. Um, and this one was really, really meaningful for Marquette because before their game against Seton Hall, they were on, they were going to be on a stretch where they played six ranked teams in a row, including Villanova twice and Seton Hall twice, once at home, one on the road. Uh, and really, when you looked at it, you're looking at a team who had just worked their way onto the bubble of the tournament because of one uh, because of a few wins that they had gotten recently. But they were still, you know, they were still on the bubble, right? And that's a tough position to be in. When you have six games against ranked teams with four of them on the road, you're not looking too good when you're already on the bubble. You're gonna likely go two and four, lose all the road games in that stretch. And probably the way Villanova's been playing, you'd think they might lose that game at home. They were one point away from losing to Seton Hall at home. And all of a sudden, instead of looking like they're going to go two and four, it looks like they're going to go four and two in that stretch because they beat Seton Hall. Uh, the way they're playing, I, I'd argue they're definitely capable of beating UConn on the road, uh, who I think is in that stretch, or maybe Providence is there. Uh, they already beat Villanova at home, so or on the road, so I don't see how they couldn't beat them at home. So... Overall, I really think that Marquette is just playing so well. I mean, they should be a ranked team by this time next week, honestly. They have a lot of good wins. They don't have many bad losses. They got a lot of upsets this year that they pulled. They played one of the tougher schedules, so nothing but credit to Marquette for how they played. Uh, but moving on from that, Indiana beat number four, Purdue, 68-65. to uh, Look, Indiana has not beaten Purdue in a very, very long time, so... Uh, safe to say this upset was, it was a real upset. I mean, regardless of what you want to talk about in terms of it's Indiana, they're 13 and four, they should beat Purdue. They should have beaten them a long time ago, which is, th those are all true. Purdue has had teams actually that I would argue Indiana had years where they were maybe a little bit better or only slightly worse and could not win at home against this team. So, uh, I would definitely make the argument that Indiana should have won those, some of those games in the past. But credit to them for finally doing it. Um, Mike Woodson, their new head coach, is now 1-0 against Purdue, unlike Archie Miller, who was 0-in-however-many-games-they-played uh, against Purdue in his overall record. So uh, it looks like Indiana made the right move there. Uh, and look, I think, they're, I think they're on their way to some great success at the end of the year. All right, well, let's talk about some close games that weren't necessarily upsets. Number 11, Houston beat Tulsa 66-64. Uh, I don't really understand why, but Houston seems to always keep it close against Tulsa. They did the same thing last year. Tulsa wasn't necessary. Tulsa was a little bit better last year, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think they were somewhere on the bubble when I think Houston actually lost them last year. Um, but at this point in the year, I don't really see Tulsa being that good. They have a losing record. So uh, 
this is not a great look for Houston, but you also look at that team and they're missing a lot of players. They've had four, they have four players who they've lost to injury this season and uh just overall they're dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of player turnaround and still they're a top 10 quality team. I don't know if I'd put them in my personal top 10, but I still believe they're good enough to warrant some consideration. I mean, they might be a sweet 16 team, they might not. I I would argue you got to tell me who they're playing. I don't have the confidence to say to fit them in as a Sweet 16 team, regardless of the matchup. I do have that confidence for some teams. They're not one of them. Uh, but I still think that's a very quality team that Houston has. And, you know, Kelvin Sampson has always been able to coach that team to play really well when it comes to the tournament time, including a Final Four appearance last year. Uh, but moving on from that, number 15, Iowa State beat number 21, Texas, 79 to 70. This was before Texas loss against Kansas State. Uh, but a good win by Iowa State. Uh, any any win really at this point, I mean, apparently Kansas State has proven it. Apparently getting a win in the Big 12 period is ridiculously hard because Kansas State had no wins prior to their two upsets this week. And uh, apparently it's not even that easy to win at home. Ask Oklahoma about what happened when they played Kansas. We'll talk about that. Uh, and, you know, this game is, is proof of that too. Texas could not go on the road and beat Iowa State. Um, Iowa State previously couldn't go on the road and beat Oklahoma. So look, there are a lot of there are a lot of teams that really are, I wouldn't say impossible to beat because well, every team in the entire country has one has one loss at least this year. Uh, but I, I would argue the Big Twelve is almost every battle is just something's got to give. So one of these teams has to lose. There's never a game that there there there's rarely a game I should say where one of the teams feels clearly overmatched, except for when maybe you're involving Baylor in the game or Kansas in the game. Uh, but moving on from that, Marquette, as I talked about, beat number 20, Seton Hall, 73-72. Talked about some of my weekend predictions last time. Uh, Mississippi State beat number 24, Alabama, 78-76. Mississippi State is a strong, it's a strong team. I mean, I, I think there's not much you can say about, about Mississippi State that's too bad. I think you can't really hold much against them. They're, I think, 13-4 and four or 13-5 and five, uh, on the year now. Um, but overall, they're, ju- they're just a good team. I think they, they're definitely a tournament team. They might be sitting on the bubble a little bit, but they're still a decent team. Uh, and moving on from that, number 17, Xavier beat Creighton 80-73. Uh, Xavier is a pretty good team, again, kind of in the range of Houston, where I wouldn't really give them a Sweet 16 berth on uh, just no matter what, but I think they can reach that level again, depending on their matchup. Uh, Creighton is a team that will probably make the tournament by the end of the year, but uh, they do need to pull together some quality wins here soon. Uh, And then moving on from that, number four, Purdue beat number 17, Illinois, 96 to 88 in double overtime. This might've been the game of the year so far. Um, It's hard to say that I would really put anything over the UCLA-Villanova game that started the year, that was a great game. I mean, Gonzaga-Alabama was a great game at the beginning of the year. There have been a lot of great games this year, um, so it's hard to say for sure that I would put it over it, but double overtime was a pretty good game, uh, and, you know, Kofi Coburn wasn't playing that much in this game, uh, and overall, uh, Purdue fought through a lot to beat Illinois, and uh, Illinois was also fighting through a lot of, uh, I mean, I think he didn't play maybe more than a minute and a half in the first overtime, and then he was out for all of the second overtime, and they still managed to stay close against a team, Purdue, that has two really great offensive centers. Um, but overall, credit to Illinois for sticking in the game. This might this is one of those losses where I actually think I gain respect for the team who lost the game. I think before this game, I thought Purdue, I thought Illinois wasn't going to win, and I thought that they might not even have the chance to keep it super, super close. 
I knew I knew the game would be within single digits, but I thought this could be a nine, a seven or nine point game, something like that. But also having stayed at that kind of a margin throughout the entire game, and it turned out that Illinois made it a lot closer. I mean, they brought it to double overtime. So uh, credit to Illinois for keeping it that close. Uh, but Purdue still proving that they're good. This was before the loss to Indiana. But again, you lose, to, you, you win at Illinois on the road. You're going to lose to Indiana on the road. Uh, one of those games you're going to lose. That's just the way that the Big Ten works. Uh, winning two road games in one road trip against two of the top five teams, I would argue, in the conference, it's just not going to happen that easily. So not surprising whatsoever to me. Uh, moving on from that, number five, Baylor beat West Virginia 77-68. to uh, this game was on the road. West Virginia fought really hard in it, but in the end, Baylor pulled out the win. Uh, same night, number seven, Kansas beat Oklahoma 67-64. to uh, That game was also on the road, so there's two road wins in the Big 12, but again, as I said, maybe the Big 12 uh, outside of Kansas and, and, and Baylor are the two teams that I would argue I, I'd, I'd pretty much pick them against anybody except each other. I think that's pretty safe to say at this point, too, uh, but Moving on from that, number eight, Wisconsin beat Northwestern 82-76. to That was off of Northwestern's win against Michigan State. So uh, it wasn't entirely a, a, a whole uh, guarantee that they were going to win this game. I think Northwestern was playing well at the time, and that was after winning on the road. So it, 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 they could easily have gone back and won at home after that, carrying that momentum for the Michigan State game. Uh, but they didn't, but they kept it close, and I think Wisconsin overall still has not done enough to convince me of who they are as a top-10 team. I don't believe in that. Uh, I said I wouldn't shoe in Houston as a top, as a Sweet 16 team without knowing the matchup. I am definitely not to- going anywhere near that with Wisconsin. Frankly, I would argue no matter who they're matched up against, they're not making the Sweet 16, but that's a little bit of a hot take. We'll see. Uh, it depends. Again, if they get a two-seed, I don't really see a team that's in the seven-seed range beating them. But if they are in the three or four seed range, I'd pick any five or six seed by the end of the year to probably beat them. Uh, but moving on from that, number 24, Tennessee beat Vanderbilt on the road, 68-60. to 60. Uh, A good game played by Tennessee. It seems like they're trying to figure out stuff, but it seems like uh, it, it looked like actually for a while that they were trying to figure stuff out. I think now they've really understood how they want to play and what their identity is. I think they've gotten better on both ends of the floor throughout the year, uh, but Overall, Tennessee, a really good team, definitely capable of going on the road and winning in the SEC, uh, and this was proof of that. Speaking of a team that was really good and good enough of uh, winning on the road in the SEC, number 12, Kentucky beat Texas A&M 64-58. Everybody knows how good Kentucky is, but let me just say for a second, Texas A&M was 15-2 heading into this game. That's the same record as Baylor. That's a better record than Wisconsin. That's a better record than Kansas. That's the only team that I can name that's that that's a worse record than is Auburn. It's the same record as Gonzaga. Uh, Texas A&M was not ranked. I don't know why they're not getting any respect. They're a good team. One of their losses is to Wisconsin, I believe, by a point or two. Uh, their only losses on the season are to good teams, and they have some good wins. So I don't really understand why it's such a big deal that uh, they can't that A&M can't be ranked. I don't know what what's out against them. Uh, Although I do say that, but I also do have them on the bubble in my tournament. However, those two things are separate. I think rankings are definitely separate from uh, tournament. I mean, the resume is not great, but any 15-2 and two team should be ranked, in my opinion, including teams in mid-majors like San Francisco and BYU. Uh, but moving on from that, uh, Alabama beat number 13 LSU 70-67. to 
even though it sounds like it might be an upset, Alabama was favored by four points in this game. They actually didn't manage to cover the spread in this game, uh, even though they were an unranked team playing at home against a top 13 team and one, uh, still didn't cover that spread. But look, Alabama's good. We all know this. Alabama has a lot of potential. They barely lose every single game. They, they do lose. They win a lot of close games. They've had some injuries that have stopped them from winning some games. I mean, we we all know that Alabama's good. They were in the, the, the Elite Eight last year, or no, sorry, the Sweet 16, and probably should have been in the Elite Eight if they didn't lose in overtime to UCLA. Uh, they, they should have been there, and they're really a good team. I don't think anybody's doubting that. Uh, and I still don't doubt LSU. They had to deal with a lot of foul trouble in this game. Uh, I would argue from watching the game, foul trouble that maybe didn't necessarily need to be foul trouble. Maybe some fouls weren't exactly fouls. Uh, but other than that, uh, LSU is still going to be fine long-term as long as the guys who were a little bit injured in that game don't stay injured and stay out for a long time. Uh, moving on from that, number 20, Xavier beat DePaul 68-67. to DePaul has been capable all year of pulling off upsets uh, really in the most random moments. They've stayed close with a lot of teams, uh, but Xavier gets this one on the road. Uh, moving on from that, number 9, UCLA beat Utah 63-58. to uh, and number 16, USC beat Colorado 61 to 58. I look at those two results and I say, Arizona is very easily the number one team in the Pac-12. And I can't argue that with anybody because if you try to argue it, you just have not watched a game of Pac-12 basketball this year. Because if you're close to Utah and if you're close to Colorado and if you get smacked by Oregon at home, you are probably not better than the team whose only loss is to Tennessee on the road. Uh, that's all I have to say about the Pac-12 for now. All right, let's talk about a few other important matchups from last week. Speaking of Tennessee, Kentucky, number 18 Kentucky at the time, beat number 22 Tennessee. I don't even know if beat is the right word for this. They put up a lot of points on them, 107 to 79. As as maybe people would have said a long time ago, or maybe have said like I used to say in elementary school when we would announce basketball scores, a lot to a little would be how I would describe this game. Uh, but moving on from that, Kentucky played a really, really good game. This team is really, really good. That's all I can say about them. Uh, Ken Palm, it, I, I would argue there are times where Ken Palm and the AP poll are at odds with each other in terms of how they rank a team. This is one of the ones where I will definitely go with Ken Palm, ranking them, I believe, at number three overall. Yeah, number four overall, rather than the country's ranking or the AP poll's ranking of having them at 12 this week. Kentucky's much closer to a top five team than they are to an outside-of-the-top-ten team. They're much better than teams like Wisconsin. I mean, I've talked about the teams that I would chew in for the Sweet 16, but Kentucky is one of those teams. Uh, but moving on from that, number nine, Kansas beat West Virginia 85-59. to uh, A good road win for Kansas. Uh, or no, sorry, a good home win for Kansas, I should say. Uh, this game was close in the first half. I thought I could put it on the close games list. And then I realized that uh, the second half just went completely awry for West Virginia. Best players in foul trouble, Taz Sherman. Uh, and really, that was just not... They just didn't have enough firepower to stay in the game at Kansas on the road uh, without their best players playing. Moving on from that, number two, Auburn, who really should be ranked number one, uh, beat Georgia 83-60. to Funny story, Auburn actually has 11 more first place votes than Gonzaga this week, but there was a single writer who had Gonzaga first and had Auburn ninth, which is one of the main reasons why Auburn is not ranked number one. Uh, I don't know why they're ninth, but moving on from that, Auburn should be number one. I like Auburn more than Gonzaga. It is a debate, though. I do agree that I, I, I think it makes sense that overall more than half of the voters think that Auburn is the number one team, but there are still some that believe in Gonzaga, which I think makes sense because of the preseason pedigree. But uh, Auburn has been amazing all year, but they beat Georgia 83-60. to 60. 
And the interesting thing that I think that I took away from this game is that Bruce Pearl came out after the game and uh, in his press conference said, you know, this is the, I don't know exactly the quote, but he basically said this is not very satisfying for a 20-point win. It didn't feel like a 20-point win. He felt like they still had things that they could improve on. I didn't necessarily watch the game, but I probably, I would probably agree with him had I watched that game. Uh, I, I think... Auburn just overall, I mean, look, you see a team like Kentucky beat Tennessee by 32 at home, or sorry, by 28 points, uh, scoring 107. It's definitely possible to be better than 83-60 to 60 against one of the weaker teams in the SEC, especially if you're Auburn. Uh, and overall, I don't think it affects them long-term, obviously. I don't think they're going to get too down on themselves over a 20-point win. If anything, it motivates them that their coach is telling them, you just won by 25, but you can still do better than that. Uh, I think that's a really big motivation factor for Auburn moving forward. They have all the right pieces. They are, for now, the number one team in the country, in my opinion. Uh, but moving on from that to the number two team in the country, in my opinion, Gonzaga, who beat San Francisco 78-62. to uh, This is probably more of an impressive win than people would think when you initially hear the words, Gonzaga beat San Francisco. San Francisco is now 15-4 and on the year. Their losses are to BYU, Gonzaga, I believe. There was one loss in a neutral site tournament and then a loss to Grand Canyon, who's one of the other better mid-major teams. San Francisco's a good team. Uh, there's no other way of putting it. They will be in the tournament. Uh, if you think that your team has a chance of making the tournament, the Michigans, the Rutgers of the world, this is a team that you wouldn't think is in your way, but is actually in your way and thriving a lot, <laughs> thriving very, very well and will be in the tournament over your favorite team if your team is anywhere near the bubble. All right, well, that wraps up our look back at last week's college basketball action. Let's turn our attention to the NFL, where the action this weekend is in the divisional playoff round. Let's start uh, with the first game Saturday in AFC action. You have the Bengals at the Titans. There's a big moment in this game. King Henry is returning. Uh, good luck, Bengals. That's the only, I mean, that's pretty much all I can say. Uh, obviously, I'm having my official prediction, so I will make that prediction. I'm picking the Titans, but let's talk about why. Uh, the line of scrimmage battle, I would argue, is almost always the most important battle of any game. When you have a team who would probably win that battle in the first place, then they get back the M the guy who should have won MVP probably last year, the best running back in the league. It's not close. He's still up there in... I think he's actually still top 10 or 15 in rushing yards this year, even though he missed more than half the season, uh, that being Derrick Henry. And then also the Bengals' starting defensive tackle, Larry Ogunjobi, is now out. Uh, that that line of scrimmage battle was already in the Titans' favor if, if those teams, if those injuries hadn't happened, if we were talking about last week with no Henry and Ogunjobi playing, now it just got even worse. Now it's even more in the favor of the Titans, and this game will be won at the line of scrimmage. I, I think the Bengals easily have a good enough... I mean, the, the Bengals rushing D this year, by the end of the year, kind of like the Bucks at the end of the year, uh, it's it's down with some of the bad teams in the league. I think they're only higher than I, I believe I read somewhere. It's the Jets and maybe the Jaguars that have worse rushing D defenses over the last five weeks than the Bengals. That is not a good formula, playing against Derrick Henry after not playing for 10 weeks uh, and with the Titans off a bye. And uh, if you look at the Titans' stats when they have A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry and uh, Julio Jones all playing at the same time, they're pretty good. I, I mean, they're better than most other teams in passing and in running. Uh, and overall, Derrick Henry just makes this team so much better. And the other thing is, 
even if for some reason he can't go or in the middle of the game his foot gets it gets re-injured, it gets re-aggravated, they've now played nine weeks. They've clinched a one seed without him playing. They know how to play without him. So there's no worry about if he goes out, what might happen to Tennessee. They've been used to it, and they've been running the same playbook the entire season. They've actually, I believe, called a higher percentage of runs with him out. So all I got to say about it is Titans have played that scheme all year. Uh, they're definitely going to play the same scheme with Derrick Henry and with A.J. Brown out there on the field, too. I don't think the Bengals are... I, I just don't think the Bengals are quite there yet to beat the Titans because they have more playoff experience. However, if this matchup were to happen next year, I'd probably be picking the Bengals by this time next year. Yeah, hard to disagree with your analysis here. Um, assuming Derrick Henry's healthy, I don't think the Bengals have a chance. Uh, maybe, they did activate him, so he, yeah, he's there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the reports are that he's that he's he's going to start. Um you know, maybe it's the Joe Burrow-Jamar Chase show and they can put up enough points to compete. The problem is if Henry's back and they're running the ball, they control the line of scrimmage, so they control the play clock, they control time of possession, and there's not much margin for error for the Bengals. So great great season for the Bengals, but I think it comes to an end, uh, like you said. So More than great season. I mean, probably the biggest overachiever in the league, I would argue, yeah. this year. Yeah, fantastic. Nothing to be ashamed of for the Bengals. Uh, let's move on to the next game which is the 49ers at the Packers, Saturday second game in NFC action. Well, I think this game, I would have picked the Packers without looking at the injury report this week, but the injury report pretty much cements it. Nick Bosa is questionable with a concussion, uh, and the really important thing that I would say about that is not the, the designation of questionable, because often the guys who are questionable do play. It's the fact that the injury is the concussion, because that is one injury that players do not control. If you have a sprained ankle, if you have a knee injury, if you have a shoulder injury, you can, I mean, to some degree, obviously, if you're too injured, the training staff will just tell you you should not be playing. But to some degree in playoff football, you can say, you know what, I'm going to gut it out. I'm going to go play this week. With a concussion, it's about the NFL's protocol. And if he doesn't pass the concussion protocol, he can't play, period, whether he wants to or not. Uh, So the, the one thing that I have with that injury designation is, there's a, it's pretty much 50-50 whether he plays or not. It's not like the usual thing that questionable is where I would argue most of the time it's probably like 80% of players who are questionable end up playing. That's not backed up by anything, but just based on my own common guesses. Uh, Jordan Willis, another defensive end, and Ambry Thomas are also questionable for the game, not in the concussion protocol. But the Packers have the opposite. Uh, they do have two questionable players that are very, very important. However, those two players were 2020 first-team All-Pro left tackle David Bakhtiari, who missed the entire year so far, and 2020 second-team All-Pro corner, who many would argue should have been a first-team corner, I would argue that same thing, Jair Alexander, who hasn't played since October. So the thing with the Packers is that the roster that got them the one seed isn't their full-strength roster. Adding Jair Alexander and David Bakhtiari, that is their full-strength roster, and they haven't played at that with, with that roster the entire season. And, and all they can do really now is get better from here, honestly, uh, with those two coming back. I mean, you are talking about all pro players. If you look at the way that they were voted last year from that same team who won a one seed last year, the only player that that had as much impact on a position-by-position basis was Aaron Rod- were Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams, according to the AP, AP All-Pro voting. So if that needs to tell you, if you need anything else to be told to you about how good these players are, you shouldn't. But... um. They're getting even better. The only problem is uh, they do have Marquez Valdez-Scantling out, 
However, they are also activating Randall Cobb from the IR, it seems like, so that will most likely offset that. And look, Aaron Rodgers doesn't have a single player on that roster other than Devontae Adams that's higher than like a fifth-round pick and in their like fifth or sixth round in the league. I, I think he'll do just fine if it's Alan Lazard and Equinemius St. Brown and, and Devontae Adams only, or if it's Devontae Adams and, and Randall Cobb is there too. I mean, he'll be fine either way. I think that's that's my takeaway with that, and I'll take the, I'll take the Packers if Jair Alexander and David Bakhtiari don't play, and Nick Bosa, Jordan Willis, and Ambry Thomas all play, I'm definitely taking them on the off chance that some of them don't for the 49ers and some of them do for the Packers. Uh, yeah, the Packers are going to win this game. Um, like you said, even healthy on healthy or even injured Packers against healthy 49ers. The Packers win this game. It's Lambeau in January at night. It's really a cruel trick to play on a West Coast team. The temperature is going to be 16 degrees at kickoff. Um, you know, if it were the Rams playing, I might say something different because defense travels and Matt Stafford's used to playing in the cold, but it's not. And the, the Niners, even though they beat the Rams, aren't the Rams. Packers are going to win this game. Well, the one thing I would say to counter that, though, is that Matt Stafford did play in a dome even while he was playing for the Lions. Uh, and the other thing is, speaking of domes, you, you talked about the fact that it's a West Coast team. The other problem is the fact that uh, the 49ers just came off of playing in the in a dome on the road, so they're they're not really used to that good weather because San Francisco is a lot colder than the than AT and T Stadium is. Uh, but now they've gotten used to the little bit of the hot weather for a little bit, and now uh, not so much. Uh, but the other thing that I, I would also say is uh, I get what you're saying with the Rams still, but yeah, I think the Packers have pretty much every advantage. Yeah, and my only comment about Stafford, and then we'll move on, is that he's played in Lambeau before. I know he That's plays true. indoors yeah. in Detroit. He's he's played there before. All right, so speaking of the Rams. Uh, they're not playing at the Packers, and I bet they're happy about that. Uh, but they get the Buccaneers instead in Sunday's Game 1. Your thoughts on this game? This game is very dependent on the injury report. I think you'd have to read all of it to really come up with your full uh, analysis and come up with a pick. And I'm not going to lie, I still don't really have a team that I'm confident in in this game because no matter the way, no matter what way you slice it, both teams are going to be lacking at certain positions because of what's happened with the injury report. So let's talk about it. Ronald Jones is out for this game. Brashad Perryman is out for this game. They were both out the last round. The Buccaneers are still fine without them. As long as, as I said, as long as they have one of Gio Bernard, uh, Le- Leonard Fournette, or Ronald Jones, I think they'll be just fine. Um, speaking of Gio Bernard, he was a full participant in practice, so he'll be fine. Uh, and last week he also played, so he's fine. Uh, Cyril Grayson might be coming back, though, a receiver. But let's get to the important stuff. Sean Murphy bunting, bunting a corner, has been out for a while. Part of the reason why the Bucks. Passing defense has been a little bit worse than it was last year. Actually, a lot worse than last year and just overall kind of in the middle of the league. He was a full participant in their last practice of the week. He is still questionable for the game, but that's a really good sign for the back, for the Buccaneers. Really bad sign for them. Center Ryan Jensen, tackle Tristan Wirfs, and back up to Tristan Wirfs, tackle Josh Wells were all limited in practice. Uh, those are big deals. I mean, Josh Wells, we've been talking about the fact that Tristan Wirfs had to go back into that game when he was injured, and then it, he didn't really look that great while he was playing hurt. Josh Wells was, wasn't there, and that's the reason why he had to go into the game, uh, or why Wirfs tried to go back into the game. I, I said earlier that, I mean, really, honestly, as long as two of three of these guys are healthy between Wirfs, Jensen, and Wells, I, I'd pick the Buccaneers pretty easily in this game. It looks like it might only be one, but that makes me look at the Rams side of things, where 
I believe Jordan Fuller might be playing, but Taylor Rapp is still in concussion protocol. Or no, sorry, Jordan Fuller is also out for the season. But Taylor Rapp, uh, he did not participate in practice. He's out. He did not pass concussion protocol before this week. And Andrew Whitworth did not practice, and he is out for this game. So uh, we thought that we'd be seeing the Rams with a little bit of a banged up uh, secondary and no real and none of their normal starters at safety against a Buccaneers team with a depleted offensive line. But actually, out of all four offensive linemen on the injury report for either of these teams, the only one confirmed out is Andrew Whitworth. So in the end, looking at that, the way it goes back and forth, I really do believe the Rams' defense has the capability to just absolutely take over this game and just wreck all the plans that the Buccaneers have and make Tom Brady throw so quick that he really can't get anything done. Uh, But... I'm going to have to go with the Buccaneers by a very, very slim margin. And honestly, if Whitworth was playing and maybe if Taylor Rapp had come back, I would probably be picking the Rams. And Leonard Fournette, along with Ryan Jensen and Tristan Wirfs, are are, are game-time decisions. However, I always, as I was saying earlier when it related to uh, Joey Bosa, game-time decisions in the playoffs almost always play, I feel like, is the way that this trends. Um, So... Overall, I'm operating pretty much on the assumption that the Buccaneers, that both Wurfs and Jensen are playing, or at least one of the two, and I think just having one of the two will just be enough. I think if they have Jensen, uh, Wells will be just good enough on the on the other side as a tackle. I think they'll be fine without uh, Wurfs for this week. Well, and I think the uh, Rams have a real chance here. Like you said, if their defense wrecks havoc, um, which it's capable of doing, Brady's not a mobile quarterback, uh, certainly not at the age of 44, wasn't when he was 24. Um, so I, I see that as a real possibility, but, um, to your point, the Rams are a little bit hobbled. It's not like the Bucks don't have a good defense. Uh, Bucks are missing some weapons, some of Brady's weapons. He's limited there. Uh, I, I think that, uh, the Rams make it a very close game, but I won't pick the upset in this game. Um, I'll stick with you and I'll pick the Buccaneers. And, and I will say another important thing is if you look at the week three matchup, it was kind of almost the same situation, although... The rosters have really changed a lot because uh, the Buccaneers are kind of used to playing with the guys that they now have uh, instead of the guys who were injured in that game or, or injured going into that game that were key parts of their team last year. They got guys back who haven't played but who weren't playing that much before then. And then when you look at the Rams, that game was played with Robert Woods. It was that long ago that Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, and Van Jefferson were was the receiving combo. And really, uh, Cooper Cup had not really broken out yet, so... The whole game is very, very different. I think that was still when, honestly, the Bucks still kind of hadn't figured out what they where they were going with Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones. They were kind of still sharing snaps, but at this point, we know Leonard Fournette is the main back. But now they're playing without him, so it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting conversation of who's still playing. And by the way, the Rams' pass rush was amazing in that game, and they also have added Von Miller since then. And also, even more important. I believe Sebastian Joseph Day was upgraded for this game, too. I believe he was taken off the IR, or that was a move that possibly might happen for the Rams. So the Rams might be getting even more, even healthier than uh, we can really know. And look, this is the uncertainty. Uh, this is why betters pick up until the last minute before the game, because it's really hard until you know if the game time decisions are actually playing or not. Uh, but, you know, we're picking in here on a Friday. Buccaneers put an asterisk next to this pick for me, obviously, even though I'm a Rams fan, I'm really biased, so I definitely think the Rams have a chance to win. All right, let's move on to the final game of uh, the playoffs this weekend, Bills at the Chiefs. Uh, yeah, I mean, the most surprising thing that I would say of, of this game is that uh, 
the Bills have a really clean injury report for a team this late in the year. You look at the Chiefs and you don't you don't feel like maybe they would have eight or nine guys on there, but they have a lot of starters on their injury report. Uh, some of them are, are some of them have, are full participants in practice and won't carry a designation into the game, but. The Bills only, they have two designations. Uh, it's Mario Addison who had a limited participation on Wednesday and Thursday, but was a full participant on Friday and has no status going into the game. And Stefan Diggs, whose injury is being described as veteran rest. Uh, <laughs> and he didn't practice on Friday for that reason. So the Bills are super, super healthy. Meanwhile, uh, Willie Gay has had some personal issues. He got arrested in the middle of this week. Uh, he's a starting linebacker. Anthony Hitchens has been limited all week in practice. Uh, for the Chiefs, so their linebacking core looks pretty depleted. Rashad Fenton is questionable for this game. Jerry Sneed has an injury, but he was full participant all week. Tyreek Hill's been dealing with his heel injury for a while. He was also full participant all week. Same as Clyde Edwards-Elair with a shoulder injury, but, you know, all these guys don't have injury designations, but that doesn't mean that they're still not a little bit hobbled. Uh, and Darrell Williams is also questionable for this game. So when you look at it overall, the Chiefs are definitely the more banged-up team. And it just feels like this game is going to come down to the quarterback battle. And I really feel like it is Allen against Mahomes. I really feel like this is a quarterback rivalry akin to Brady Manning in the making. However, I think for now, I'm going to stay with Mahomes in this. I think if you asked me earlier in the year, maybe week eight, week nine, I would still have said for sure that the Bills are better than the Chiefs, even though the record didn't say that. Uh, I just believed that Allen was playing better at that time. But as of this moment, oh my, I mean, it is so hard to call. I mean, it's the second time in NFL history, regular season or postseason, that quarterbacks are playing each other after both throwing five touchdown passes in the game prior. When I try to say that Mahomes is the hottest quarterback right now in terms of how he's been playing recently in the league, the problem is Josh Allen is sitting there with his 47-point performance against a Bill Belichick-led Patriots defense. So it's really impossible to call, but I'll just stick with the Chiefs just because I feel like always when it's a toss-up, you just go with the home team. Well, I'm trying to find an upset to pick. I don't want to just pick all chalk this weekend. And I was grappling with the Bucks uh, game versus the versus the Rams. I'm going to go with the Bills here. Uh, and the reason why I say that is it's hey, throwing five touchdown passes at home is a lot different than on the road. So um, I realize Josh Allen's hot, but I don't expect him to throw five touchdown passes. reason why I say that is the Chiefs have had some slow starts this year. They had a slow start uh, last weekend against Pittsburgh. And I don't if they get off to a slow start again, I think the Bills jump on them and hang on, unlike uh, a team that got to jump on maybe Tennessee who got to jump on Kansas City, uh, was that last year? And uh, Kansas, or two years ago, and Kansas City came back? Anyway, I, I Houston. Think, oh, Houston, that's correct. It was up 24 to nothing and that's lost right, a playoff that's right. game. Uh, Don't ask I'm gonna me I'm going to go how. with the Bills. I'm just going to go with the Bills. And I think, again, another thing about that is it's a fair point, because also when you look at it on paper, I mean, you're looking at the number one defense in the league with a quarterback who just threw six touchdown passes against the Chiefs. And I think we know what the Chiefs are. They definitely do not have anywhere near a number one defense, but... It's really hard to say, but I mean, look, I, I feel like there's just something in the championship pedigree that the Chiefs have. I'm really close to picking the Bills in this game. I thought that they were better than this all year, but as I kept watching them this whole year, the other thing that I was thinking is they're going to end up playing somebody really, really good in the divisional round because of the fact that they can't win X game or Y game. 
And this is the result of it. Now you have to go play the Chiefs on the road. If this game was at home, 100% I'm picking the Bills. Uh, but overall, just the home field advantage and everything. Mahomes is 6-1 and one in home playoff games. He's actually never played a true road game in the playoffs. Uh, but overall, got to go with the Chiefs. I, I believe in that home record. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. That wraps up this uh, look at the NFL Divisional Playoffs. It also ends this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, January 24th, we'll, where we'll discuss what actually happened in those NFL Divisional Playoff rounds. We will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions and have a look back at the week's NBA action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his weekend predictions that were posted on Thursday and updated NCAA basketball tournament bracket, uh, which is posted on Saturdays. All that's on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.